0: Richard, welcome you to the show. This will be very pleasant, you should probably know. This is development hell. So don't be surprised if you don't feel well. That worked out great.
1: Hey, fans. It's Richard here. You know, the handsome and sensitive one. Uh, I'm just here to talk about how my audio messed up during this record. And so my audio is now lost. So, uh, with the help of Spike, I'm here to uh, just give a couple of reactionary sounds, and we're just going to drop those in randomly where we see fit if I can remember uh, what happened during the episode. So here we go.
2: I just wanted, I almost said this before we recorded, that I've been in a post, like, this this ecstasy of knowing about all this stuff the last couple mm-hmm. days, because it's been a couple days since we recorded the last one. Um, Yesterday, I went on to HBO Max, with the full intent to dig into Godzilla. And about two hours later, I had watched Ocean's 12 again. And I, so like, I, (laughs) but the intent is
0: there. (laughs) It's just like, I like, I like to imagine that there's been multiple times in your life where you've really meant to do something or like be there for someone. And you've just ended up watching Ocean's 11 again. (laughs) Well, it's not. Well, yeah, I mean, like I would
2: cancel casual plans for Ocean's 11 but like oceans 12 has kept me from like job interviews and funerals
1: yeah that's awesome sure yeah sure but
2: the
0: intent is Uh, that i'm logging
2: on to i'm i'm getting there i'm getting close
0: yeah yeah well you're there i mean now now you're now you're as much of a godzilla fan as anyone else which i love guys demons welcome to another episode of development hell we are one of four podcasts created within the last year that chronicle the bumpy road that truly is the pass fail industry known as entertainment movies music movies games television movies theater movies literature and movies all have a story to tell i'm kyle anderson and i'm joined by richard humphrey and spike kittrell and we're here to go to hell so you don't have to that's the best one yet it's uh, you know it's the morning. There's some energy coming. I'm feeling it. We're feel pumping. Good. And today, today, before we actually get in uh, to John DeBont's 1994 attempt at a Godzilla film, we have a new five star review to read. Oh, that's right. Um, I'm posting this uh, five star review in our Discord right now. Um, if anybody would like to read it with me, <laughs> um, I'll read the first uh, the first scene heading. Uh, Spike, if you want to read the second scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, maybe Richard, you read the the third scene to the end uh, from exterior night L.A. onward. So I'll start exterior well, who day. Is this from? Um, oh, this is uh, this is from MC Underbite, aka uh, Eric Angel. Oh, uh, is it a hilarious okay. comedian? Shout out. Uh, so this is Kong pitch. Fade in. Exterior day. A misty Skull Island. A newborn Kong is crying next to his mother. Kong's mother is a beautiful ape with locks of blonde hair that would make the son jealous. The mother is lifeless. She died from childbirth. Period. Kong kills. Oh. 15 years later, present day. Now, that's to point out
2: that what we just heard took place in 2006.
0: <laughs> yeah, one Batman year after the film. That has just
2: begun when that scene one
0: year, happened. One year after Peter Jackson's Kong. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, exterior, it maybe say that. exterior day, a foggy Skull Island. So in 15 Different. years, the mist has turned to a fog. Um, it's matured as well. A full-sized Kong, like 10 Jack Blacks put together, is being shipped to America. <laughs> he smashes a guy's skull with his massive Jack Black fist. That's
1: how the island got the name. Kong kills. Exterior. Night. L.A. The ship goes to L.A., not New York.
0: That's maybe my favorite of <laughs> the whole thing. i just like, so this just happens. Deal with it.
1: Interior night. The comedy store. Kong bursts through the doors. He ends up on stage. It's open mic night. Kong kills. Oh, man. <laughs> End.
2: Now, he shouts out also a a, a, a pitch for a potential sequel. Which is good. Always be franchising. Kong vs. Twitter. My only note kong v twitter
0: now that's good that's good or maybe twit v kong Zack snyder's twit v kong <laughs> if you guys leave a five-star review uh similarly set up with a with a pitch to a movie that we've covered uh we'll read it yeah we'll give us that, who should, who should godzilla be fight next yeah who should godzilla fight next who should 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 spider-man continue to turn off the dark you let us know mm. um <clears throat> should the food fight so should the food fight who are the, the boondocks truly saints uh, all right, guys. Are you guys ready to get into this? Mm-hmm. Um, in October 1992, TriStar Pictures, a subsidiary of Sony, announced that they had signed a deal with Toho to produce an American Godzilla film with quote a list stars, a list screenwriters, and a list directors, which could be launched into a series of sequels. On May 19th, 1998. Five uh, five years after that announcement, TriStar's Godzilla finally opened to a record-breaking 7,363 theater screens across the United States. uh, Co-written and directed by Roland Emmerich and producer Dean Demlin, the team behind uh, Independence Day, Godzilla was widely expected to break box office records on its way to being the top-grossing film of the year, if not of all time. However... While not the financial bomb it's often reported to be, the film failed to deliver what audiences, exhibitors, licensees, or studios wanted and effectively killed the franchise at Sony. But as Godzilla fans are well aware, Devlin and Emmerich's Godzilla was actually the result of Tristar's second attempt to produce a Godzilla film. The first version, directed by John DeBont, who you might remember from our Speed and Speed 2 Cruise Control episode, if you haven't, go check that out, uh, to film a Godzilla story by screenwriters Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who you might know from going on to create uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, And this would have likely resulted in a Godzilla story much closer to the Toho classic. We weren't ready. We didn't deserve it yet. No, we truly
2: didn't. Twenty. Because I, I think, like, I, I don't. It seems like we're going to talk about that a little more than Roland Emmerich's. It, I would, def, I defend Roland Emmerich a lot. I don't think he's really made a full stop terrible movie. I think he's kind of really good at what he makes. Mm, I would argue. Because obviously, that's is, not a great. This Godzilla is the worst movie, movie
0: he's made. In our Discord, I just dropped a promotional uh, picture that TriStar had put out to promote the 1994 DeBont film uh, in trade publication. So this wasn't even supposed to go to fans. This was supposed to go to like other producers and directors around town to like get the town excited about a Godzilla movie coming. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, making today's story possible at all uh, with the level of detail that we I, I don't know if we've ever seen in one of these just because. The, the sources that Keith Aiken and sci-fi Japan went to, they went to Debunt directly. They got art that nobody had ever seen before. Um, they created a four part article series called uh, Godzilla Unmade. And Keith's work at that is like unparalleled. And if you're interested in this, I mean, I had to cut out, you know, pages and pages and pages of really, really cool stuff from that. So I highly recommend checking out that article series now to tell the tale. Of Godzilla having a U.S. high budget film. We actually have to go back to the year of 1962 and uh, and we have to meet a man by the name. I'm dropping a picture of him in the discord right now by the name of Henry Saperstein. He's got.
2: Yeah, he's got a. Oh, look at that I'm putting up on the wall. <laughs> he <laughs> looks very excitable and like I'm just doing my thing. He's like a madman character for
0: sure. Yeah, but like a dorky madman. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so uh, Henry Saperstein's long history with Godzilla and Toho began in the early '60s. He had gotten into film and television distribution by providing syndicated programming for independent TV stations that were popping up all over the U S. So he was one of these guys that like quickly was like, Oh, if I license, you know, all this stuff, I can sell it 30 or 40 times, you know what I mean? Sure. So he was in, yeah. he was sort of in the business of buying a bunch of IPs and hoping one of them becomes a national treasure, which it did. Sort of the, 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 the uh, our guy from food fight yes totally but but in the fucking 60s um so saperstein's initial offerings were mostly westerns and other low budget drama movies but after receiving requests for more science fiction programming saperstein contacted toho in the in early 1964 what i didn't know that because toho was like you know kind of making the the coolest low budget sci-fi stuff Uh, Both parties soon agreed to a multi-film co-production deal in which Saperstein would invest production money, supply story ideas, and occasionally provide American actors for upcoming Toho movies in exchange for free distribution rights in North America. This partnership resulted in fan-favorite kaiju films such as Frankenstein Conquers the World. Here's the thing.
2: I, I know I talk a lot of shit. (laughs) <laughs> about, <laughs> about like the ip thing frankenstein is clearly like why is there no hit frankenstein it seems like we all want to make it well, what about i frankenstein it could cut you up
0: i forgot <laughs> he's got those yeah i forgot i forgot frankenstein um <laughs> <laughs> so in the 1970s saperstein also began acting as godzilla's quote agent in the united states so he would introduce himself as Godzilla's agent and, like, give you his business card and be like, maybe you've heard of my client. He's a pretty big deal. Like, Saperstein was kind of adorable. That's like... The, <laughs> but that's also, like,
2: the, you know, rides the line of a crazy person who you immediately realize has no power or, like, stature in the industry where they're like, I represent a lot of big-name clients. Godzilla, Frankenstein, the Easter Bunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, also the idea of being, like like yeah i have this client he's the perfect client he he is not a human being he is only a brand (laughs) (laughs) i can tell you as a manager best client i've ever had um So he he had set up a bunch of merchandising and licensing deals for the character uh, with a wide range of companies. He continued this role all the way through the 90s, uh, licensing Godzilla for Marvel comic book series, um, the Mattel Shogun Warriors tour line, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon show, advertising campaigns with Dr. Pepper and Nike and more. So not. Once Dr. Pepper's involved, you're fucked. I know. It's It's the kids' bag shit so fucking hard. Uh, Henry Saperstein's greatest Godzilla related dream, his greatest dream was to turn the Japanese monster into a Hollywood major motion picture. That is totally brand new information. Uh, (laughs) With Toho's blessing, Saperstein began pitching Godzilla to major American film studios and production companies. Uh, He eventually met with two young producers, Carrie Woods and Robert N. Fried, who had a production deal with Sony Pictures Entertainment. Uh, Carrie Woods independently produced Swingers and would go on to make Scream, uh, while Fried, you might remember, as the producer of the Boondock Saints. So had Godzilla worked out properly, he probably would not have taken the job with Miramax, stayed at TriStar, and not made Boondock Saints. Well, and that bar would still be
2: up and running today. <laughs>
0: yeah, that bar would be you'd you'd be able to order from it on Postmates right now, It'd be a gastro.
2: Duffy would have like, yeah, gotten hit with like fines for not making people wear masks <laughs> like on the fucking first week. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, Troy Troy Duffy, Troy Duffy has the vibe of a guy who yells at his wife in line for something. <laughs> <laughs> or like or does the thing where he makes his
2: wife wait in another line to see which line is fastest
0: <laughs> and then waves at her and is like, "Deborah." <laughs> You got <laughs> the card. <laughs> uh, so Carrie Woods and Robert Fried uh, had initially met with Saperstein to discuss the possibility of doing a live-action feature film version of Mr. Magoo. One of his other clients, <laughs> Frankenstein versus Mr. Magoo. Well, so he also—I mean, he also has Mr. Magoo, though. That's one of the other like properties that he had. I think he re- he, he eventually sells Mr. Magoo to Disney for for like a little boatload. Uh, but as those talks fizzled, Saperstein mentioned at the end of the meeting that he had the remake rights for Godzilla. Uh, the producers immediately recognized Godzilla's name value. The older Toho movies have been seen all over the world, and the character was cur- currently starring in Nike's successful Godzilla vs. Charles Barkley campaign, which I have to just send a picture <laughs> of because these rip. The art is so cool. Damn, um, he's dunking on me every day. <laughs> This motherfucker, I can't get a fucking two. I can't. When Carrie and Woods uh, initially presented the idea to Sony Pictures, they learned that studio executives saw Godzilla in a different light. Quote, we pitched the idea to Columbia and they passed out right. Their response was that they felt it had the potential for camp, recounted Woods. Because at this time there was a big worry about serious movies coming off as campy. Mm -hmm. Right now, a big reason for this is that, um, John Belushi hosted this Godzilla night on TV uh, That'll in, do it. <laughs> in the in the 80s where he was like half of it he's like in a Godzilla suit and like they had hired a bunch of SNL writers and they were doing like bits uh, and it was like during the presentation of Godzilla versus Ghigan which was mm-hmm. that one that had like all those like five or 10 different scripts like pieces and like recycled footage and it, it's like one of the worst Godzilla movies and it's the first one they ever showed on like Widely showed in like prime time on American television. And mm-hmm. because it had Belushi presenting it and all of this, the vast majority of the American population at this time were under the impression that Godzilla was this very hokey, stupid, dumb, like guy in a suit, people's voices off sync, like B movie stuff. So the two producers had no luck with Columbia's sister company either. Quote, TriStar also passed on the project. <laughs> Uh, Godzilla getting nowhere fast uh, Woods took a mammoth Gamble going over the executive Heads and taking Godzilla directly To his former boss and the villain Of our story Peter Gruber So he was chairman of the board And CEO of Sony Entertainment uh, And Woods decided To go over his boss's heads and quote uh, I was lamenting my Futility to my wife and she asked Have you pitched to Goober? I explained I can't pitch to Goober He's the head of the the company he's the top boss i can't do that he doesn't want to get involved in production decisions she just looked at me and said pitch goober you imagine your life changing by someone telling you to pitch goober (laughs) so over over his long career uh over his long career peter goober um kind of became a well well it's goober g-u-b-e-r it's peter goober uh had had so he had he had produced Taxi Driver, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, American Werewolf in London, Rain Man, and Batman. So he was due for a hit. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He also had a reputation as a better self-promoter than as a producer, uh, and had what at best could be called a, quote, strained relationship with several top filmmakers, among them Steven Spielberg, who had banned Goober from the set of The Color Purple. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) What do you have to do to get banned from the set of The Color Purple? I'll give you one guess. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's just, like, a list of words you don't say on that, like, like that you check in on the call sheet. It says what you're not supposed to say on the set of The Color Purple. Also,
0: like, Spielberg is, like, a very kind man, right? Like, he doesn't seem very like the, He soft. seems very hard to
2: piss off. And The Color Purple, he was very, um like, sensitive to everything and very, like, like, you know, went to his actors. like you tell me how this needs to be protected and done. Like, uh, yeah, to get, to get any animosity from Spielberg must be a problem, especially. You gotta if be a, a real, produced. a
0: real, a real villain. Uh, so Carrie Woods decided that approaching Peter Gruber at the office would most likely not work and would also draw unwanted attention from the studio executives that had already rejected Godzilla. Instead, he flew from Los Angeles to Florida, where Goober had a speaking engagement and surprised the CEO at the event with a direct pitch. That is fucking weird. (laughs) Half expected uh, to be reprimanded for breaking protocol, Woods was relieved when Goober began talking about Godzilla as, quote, an international brand that could support just not just one movie, but a series of films for years to come. Quote, Peter got it. He saw the movie in his head. He was like, Godzilla, the fire-breathing monster? Hell yeah. The fire breathing is he <laughs> also doesn't get it. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's one thing away from being like Godzilla, that big snake? Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> like, uh, so, uh, Peter Gruber uh, set up Godzilla at TriStar, <laughs> you might remember I had just rejected the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Been like, no, we don't want to make that. But, when, uh, and- but it's like when
2: Gruber says it- shit moves.
0: He, he uh, basically worked with Sony Goober did to uh, create the licensing deal for the Godzilla rights from Toho. Now for Toho, this was a no lose situation. Sony Pictures was offering $400,000 advance payment, plus an annual licensing fee of half of that to cover the Godzilla character for a large scale American production with, quote, A-list talent. Toho would also receive production bonuses, be given distribution and merchandising rights to the film in Japan, and a percentage of the profits from international ticket sales and merchandising. In addition, Toho could continue to make their own Godzilla uh, movies in Japan while the TriStar film was in development. Dang. So Toho was just like, why wouldn't we do this?
2: You know, apparently Goober and John Peters were banned from the color purple. Yeah, we're going to talk about John Peters a lot. (laughs) Uh, They were both banned from the color purple for uh, their history of offering, quote, suggestions during production.
0: It was like oh it's no.
2: 1985 and you have some fucking ideas for Steven Spielberg making the color purple, go fuck go the fuck home.
0: <laughs> hey, I've got some lines for the uh for uh for not Jamie. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh so let's see. Um stop even it with an A. E R Hard R. Uh, hard R. They call me okay,
2: hard so R Goober. Tarantino <laughs> makes hard R movies. You need to be saying hard R words.
0: Uh, my name's not Peter Gooba. <laughs> and I'm allowed to say that. I'm a Peter Gooba. Uh, so even so, uh, Fried uh, conceded that the step-by-step negotiations with Toho were, quote, a painstaking process. You see, Toho wanted the new Godzilla to closely resemble the Japanese version. So they prepared a list of do's and don'ts for Tristar to follow. The lengthy document, which was reported to be more than 75 pages, set down a series of rules defining the monster's background. Godzilla must be created by a nuclear incident. His behavior, Godzilla does not eat people. His appearance, Godzilla must have three rows of dorsal fins. Godzilla must have four claws on each hand and foot. Godzilla must have a long tail. Plus such key stipulations as Godzilla must not be made fun of and Godzilla cannot die. Sony Pictures also acquiring merchandising rights outside Japan would be allowed to produce an animated spin-off of the show for television, which would eventually result in the Saturday morning cartoon program Godzilla the Series. Fun fact, uh they also had ideas for a sequel at this point, just sort of at the executive level, which included uh in the second movie they want to include a insect uh, Uh, villain, a giant spider by the name of Queen Bitch, which was uh, the idea of one John Peters. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, dude, there is such a development
2: hell episode to be made specifically about John Peters giant spider.
0: Yeah, honestly, he
2: seems to just need this to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do like that. He keeps he keeps telling like Spielberg that he needs a giant spider. <laughs> he keeps... I know the color purple. <laughs> Look, racism is whatever. But did you know the most dangerous predator in the animal kingdom? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like... <laughs> folks, rate this show five stars, folks. Uh, Give us your pitch. For words they could have said in the color purple <laughs> or, or not uh <laughs> but as the as the sony toho deal came together in japan Cary woods started feeling the heat back in los angeles uh you know he, he had just gone over all his boss's heads um his direct appeal to peter gruber had gotten godzilla off the ground but it also created a level of anger and resentment among the studio executives that he had passed along the way woods recalled that quote Mike Moldovi, the president of TriStar, phoned me to say, I don't want to talk to you. If you feel you can go to Gruber for decisions, be my guest, but stay the fuck off my phone list. Uh, When Peter Gruber learned of the conversation, he advised Woods, don't don't let Moldovi scare you. He may not be on the lot for much longer. So this foreshadows a lot of weird Sony TriStar Columbia executive drama that we'll get into later. So on October 29th, 1992, Variety publicly broke the news that TriStar and Toho had signed a deal for Godzilla. TriStar announced Godzilla as part of a slate of big-budget, high-profile, tentpole productions that they expected to start releasing in 1994. The lineup also included Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Taking Liberty, which is another movie that was stuck in development hell and never got made, Terry Gilliam's Cartoon, another movie that got stuck in development hell and never made, and James Cameron's (laughs) Spider-Man. Mm, And now a reading from
2: James Cameron's
0: Uh, Spider-Man. TriStar officially announced Godzilla in November of 92, with trade ads and industry publications proclaiming a worldwide release in 94. With Steven Spielberg's highly anticipated Jurassic Park set for May of 1993, TriStar saw Godzilla as the perfect vehicle to exploit the expected audience demand for similar big-budget, high-tech dinosaur monster movies. Giant spiders became much more like possible. It, it seems to be the real, the real key selling point to TriStar. Like somebody made the mistake of being like, and we're going to have tech like, like, like Jurassic Park, you know, they'll have their dinosaur, we'll have our giant, you know, thing. And it, it seems like TriStar really was like, oh, this is Jurassic Park. Great. We're making Jurassic Park. Mm hmm. The the budget for the film was anticipated to be in the $40 million range, roughly four times the amount that Toho had uh, produced for their Godzilla movies, but about the same budget as Jurassic Park. Uh, one TriStar producer said, quote, This is exactly the kind of movie that defines why Sony gets into this business. It's a piece of fluff that can be exploited in every single way. CD-ROMs, ride films, talking books, electronic media, everything. It's definitely an event film. That's so gross. Isn't it? Isn't that the grossest quote you are? Also, what a what a quote of its time. CD-ROMs, ride oh, yeah. films, talking books. Talking books. <laughs> Isn't it weird that the
2: the only thing that survived that was talking books? Like <laughs> that's the only thing we still have going.
0: But again, like at this point, like Woods and Woods and Woods and Frieds don't dislike Godzilla, but they're also like not Godzilla fans. They're just like, "Oh, we've heard of that." Sure. That's it that's cool that we've heard of that and no one is trying to make that already. Like, we should do I that. I guess we can make that a thing. I we understand and like. Yeah. And then Peter Gruber is like, "Oh, yeah, that's a dragon. I love dragons." And oh. so like so there's nobody on board yet that has any you know enjoyment even uh with it um so uh quote the big mo short for the big momentum was peter gruber's catchphrase he felt the best way to get a movie made was to pile on so many positives that nobody in upper management could stop a film big stars big directors get momentum uh he said to uh woods and uh you know he he said i've done my bit now it's up to you. Get this thing rolling. You have to give it momentum. Um, so the first order of business uh, to give this quote, the big mo was to hire screenwriters. Uh, they went and hired uh, Ted Elliott and Terry Rosario uh, after talking to many, many different writers and. Um, While Elliot and Rosario had become two uh, of the most commercially successful screenwriters in Hollywood, um, their credits include Mask of Zorro, Shrek, all four Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And in 1993, uh, however, their only two notable credits were the Fred Savage, Howie Mandel comedy Little Monsters, which had Mm -hmm. uh, bankrupted its company uh, and a rewrite on Disney's Aladdin. Oh, wow. Uh, and these guys are apparently they would do rewrite on a lot of stuff, but like they rewrote enough of Aladdin that like the industry was like, oh, these guys are pretty good. So uh, T- uh, Ted Elliott, Ted Elliott uh, recounted that, quote, uh, Carrie, Terry, uh, Carrie called me and said, uh, quote, have you guys given any thought to your next project? And we said, we're looking. He said, well, I've got one word for you, Godzilla. And we said, uh, do you have any other words? <laughs> That's a quote. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man uh carrie woods convinced them to come to tristar and discuss the project um they they really had no interest in doing a godzilla movie though but they were honestly like we need a hit like we need something that doesn't bankrupt a company but i totally understand
2: that because like here's from from from, because they didn't have the first episode the first part of this godzilla episode meaning like right before we started talking about this I was a different person. I like, (laughs) I really was just like, well, Godzilla is the thing where they made a good movie and then they've, they've gone on to make cartoonish versus movies, you know, with increasingly worse effects and flying drop kicks. And I understand that, like, it just makes sense though, that like you're given, someone thinks that that one word can get you excited and it just wouldn't. Right. Right. Especially if this being is being pitched pre Jurassic park. Now, um,
0: Fried said, uh, quote, we hired these two because they weren't engaged in writing a schlocky type of movie. Another reason uh, we're excited about Godzilla, apart from the chance to spend large amounts of money on the effects, which everyone is expecting. It's because we've put a lot of time, thought and finance into the screenplay. So I think we'll have a better thought out story than any Godzilla film ever seen before. So this is like also like before they've written the screenplay. That quote was from like well, a I trade
2: pub. My guess is they had Space Godzilla in their back pocket. They were like, "This is gonna be the fucking coolest <laughs> thing i will ever see. Yeah, they're pointing at Destroyoya. Well,
0: also, also Spike. I don't know if you if you realize if you remember a Destroyer and Watanabe has to go like do the nuke to wake him up. They kill him with the oxygen destroyer but it doesn't work on Ghidorah because Ghidorah doesn't need oxygen because Ghidorah's from space. A lot of people are saying, though, that because there's, like, a weird crab uh that's, like, wiggling by in, like, the corner of the frame next to the oxygen destroyer in the shot where they show it, that that uh-huh. crab thing is going to become Deso in a future film. That's, like, the fan, like, Chills. the screen rant fan theory. Chills, uh, baby. So They announce it. Godzilla die like I would be there fucking immediately to be like oh my god will he though he can't he's the king of the monsters. <laughs> Carrie Woods and Robert Fried uh, were extremely pleased with Elliot and Rosario's first draft. Quote: They wrote a beautiful original screenplay. There was a new character, a foe for Godzilla. They did a really great job. Um, so I I read uh their screenplay uh and it kind of rips. The whole thing is about like a. A a girl whose father was a researcher, he discovered Godzilla and like Godzilla like burst out of the ice when his when he discovered him and like killed her father. So she's been growing up as a scientist wanting to track down Godzilla and like kill him herself. Right. That's been like her like life's goal. So they go to where uh, Godzilla was kept and they find all this weird fluid and they test it and they're like, oh, this is embryotic fluid. And then they find out that it's, like, works as, like, kind of a sedative for Godzilla. So they take all the embryotic fluid and turn it into this, like, giant collar thing that they can attach to Godzilla to, like, basically, like, force him into an eternal slumber uh but meanwhile there's like this alien probe that comes to earth and starts taking a bunch of animals like it takes like a bobcat and a bunch of bats and like a bear and like a wolf and like melds them into this like giant abomination uh called the called the griffon um and so when the Griffin starts destroying everything, they realize, oh, shit, we put the wrong monster to sleep. And then there's a really awesome sequence where Godzilla is trying to fight the Griffin, but he's got, like, the collar on that's, like, making him drugged. Uh, and so then the government is trying to, like, get the collar off Godzilla so he can beat the shit out of the Griffin. And the at the end of the movie, the girl basically has the opportunity to kill Godzilla, and she doesn't because she sees him as a protector. Like pretty good Godzilla movie for the '90s, honestly. Spike, are you okay? You've been you've been yeah, reeling no, ever all since I mentioned. Great. There's this rumor that, that a- Distro- Destroyoya
2: is in a post-credit scene. This is from a guy who has apparently been ninety percent right, uh, or ninety percent right ninety percent of the time. So it seems there's going to be a post-credit Whoa. scene at the end of Kong vs. Godzilla that sets up Destroyoya. So go back to before we you started. To tell me about the screenplay. I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Though. I love that. Um, um, but I was going in and out. That sounds wild. You read this entire screenplay?
0: Yeah. Uh, it it rippy. It rippy. It rippy is
2: sticky. Um, what if that was an entire star comment?
0: <laughs> it rippy is sticky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Woods and Fried first. Uh, Woods and Fried first offered Godzilla to Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin. Uh, who had just made Universal Soldier at Tristar, right? So, like, Tristar liked them. They just made this Dolph Lundgren, John claude Van Damme hit. Uh, But Emmerich couldn't understand uh, anybody's enthusiasm for the property. Quote, I was never a big Godzilla fan. They were just weekend matinees you saw as a kid, like Hercules films are really bad Italian westerns. You'd go with your friends just to laugh. This is fluff. This is nothing. If you could introduce
2: maybe perhaps Frankenstein to the mix, maybe Frankenstein for the punch or the I could be perhaps interested. But right now, I am. I'm, I keep dipping in a fucking French, but yeah, he's German, so I, it's yeah. this strange that no, Frankenstein
0: not coming up with this guy. Uh, yeah devlin said uh we just thought quote, how do you overcome the cheese factor we talked about it a lot but all we could see was the farce we could only see the joke we couldn't see a movie dude this guy is i fucking they love eventually Robert. they eventually make godzilla though which is wild <laughs> so yeah
2: this has only been this is only getting made by people who have proclaimed I hate godzilla
0: it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so uh, one name that kept popping up uh, in the early days as a reported director was Tim Burton whoa The quirky uh, Burton—that's crazy, right? Uh, The quirky Burton was definitely the type of A-list filmmaker Woods and Fried were looking for, because of Batman and Batman Returns being such commercial hits as adaptations go. Um, Burton was known also to be a Godzilla movie fan, using Godzilla and King Ghidorah for comedic cameos in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, really? Yeah, there's like he like references them, and they have like a weird little like Joe cameo in pee Wee's Big Adventure, which was literally them being like, oh, you know, I bet Tim Burton will want to do it. He mentioned them.
2: That's like uh, Jason Siegel getting <laughs> Muppets because of a little Henson, like, the puppet stuff in Forgetting Sarah Marshall,
0: where it's like, do you like the Muppets? And he's like, yeah, all
2: right. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, quote, I know that Tim Burton was interested and was called in to pitch a version. I would love to hear the Burton pitch. Like you talk about a pitch meeting that like I don't want to see the movie, but I do want to hear the pitch. He comes out and he's just he goes raw, <laughs> raw. He's angry at the city. He doesn't understand. Godzilla is yeah. on
2: eyeliner. This is, uh, <laughs> this is about a, a, a an ancient beast that just
0: can't fit in. Terry Rossio said. Uh, But there were concerns among some of us uh, with the crew with how he would have handled the material. I actually think Tim Burton wouldn't have been right for this movie. If he did a Godzilla film, he might have intentionally made it campy or made it a guy in a rubber suit. I mean, imagine the words he would have had Godzilla (laughs) saying. (laughs) But I do kind of agree with that. Like I could see Tim Burton's take being like, well, we kind of just have to make it mike myers in a suit you know or like whatever they weirdly decide
2: <laughs> well but again they're afraid of the first guy who actually likes godzilla making godzilla like oh if he makes it camp or makes it this or that well first of all you don't hire tim burton and then go ooh, you know what i'm a little worried he might make it tim burton that's <laughs> he might make it campy <laughs> second is like why are we suddenly like throwing down the one guy who seems american who wants to make a goddamn well, because godzilla
0: they football. don't they don't want to hire tim burton they want to hire the box office returns of batman and batman 2 which i guess (laughs) what i mean that's his whole career right is that no one wants him they just want what comes of it but like those movies made 700 million Uh, quote. I believe David Fincher was enthusiastic and positive about directing the picture. No, he he made a pitch to direct it set in Chicago for some reason, and the studio was (laughs) intrigued but dubious (laughs) about going with Fincher's ideas. You have to remember basement. Yeah, in Chicago. Uh, You have to remember he was still a risky director in those days. But I can only imagine what he would have done with it. He was also uh going to do a script for the Avengers back then, and did a Honda commercial as a with some of the ideas that he was going to try Uh, but they decided to not go down that road Fincher's such a like cousin to the Soderbergh model that I love so much which is like
2: he's so smart that Mm -hmm. he only makes a few movies because he will sit down and go like because he's attached to this kind of shit all the fucking time where like his name is thrown around for Star Wars, apparently Godzilla and Avengers and uh World War Z too. And it's just like he will but he will sit down and go, I need so much time, so much money. And to your point with yeah. um Burton, he's like, You get a David Fincher movie out of it, but you have to make it the way I make it, which is expensive and and, and takes a long time. This is yeah. why like Mindhunter I, I can't... can't exist anymore.
0: I can't tell if the Avengers is the Avengers or if it's like that British TV that show TV The Avengers, show. which exactly also seems like a very alley, I guess. yeah feels like a very Finchery thing to direct. Yeah, uh, so I'm I'm not sure. I love the idea of him wanting to just do a straight up The Avengers movie and right testing in. it with a Honda commercial. Yeah, um, but who who do you think gets offered the, the to direct the film next? This is when 1993. Um Kevin Smith nope uh who gets offered it next but
1: James Cameron. you're telling me James Cameron had his hands in everything <clears throat> However, in 1993 he was directing true lies and was Kevin developing
0: spider-Man made
2: clerks yet I'm so I'm embarrassed. <laughs> They just—they offered it to him at the
0: convenience store. They're like, "You look like yeah. you've got some hot takes." <laughs> they're like, "They're like, do you have uh, any weird stories about blowjobs and farting?" Um. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was about to make this movie, but you want me to make Godzilla? Okay, but it can't—it cannot be camp. Can't be camp, and we then Godzilla has going to talk about pussy like ninety percent of the movie. So so he was too busy, you know, directing true lies, which wasn't I can't imagine was an easy task and uh, developing Spider-Man. When asked about Godzilla, Cameron uh, related that, quote, it was presented to me as an interesting script, but not something I would have ever considered really directing." Hmm. Uh, The project must be true for him so much, though. The project was turned. Dude, I can't imagine the cool scripts. James Cameron has turned down. You know what I mean? Like all the cool because
2: well, he's like, well, I'm James Cameron. I can't be doing it's it's a it's an even more elevated Fincher thing of like every movie I make has to be a James Cameron movie. That can't just be any
0: movie. Yeah. Well, and it seems he's like, like Fincher... made the biggest, craziest movie ever, like four movies in a row. It seems like the, the main reason they passed on Fincher was he sort of just at this point had like a reputation for being hard to work with because he wanted to make his kind of movie. You know what I mean? So this like is Fincher. Yeah, that was Fincher. Well, yeah, and that's that's still his reputation. I mean, that's why if you see
2: a filmmaker start making movies for Netflix, (laughs) it means that they're no longer worth the prestige to um, a studio. Yeah, (laughs) look at Scorsese. Look at uh, Soderbergh making stuff for HBO Max. Like
0: Uh, the the project was turned down by Ridley Scott and Robert Zemeckis, who were offered the project within about a month of each other. Both really cool Godzillas. Like it's
2: still like all of these are great. Both of these are very cool. The
0: next one maybe not as much in a surprising note the directing team of Joel and Ethan Cohen were also potential candidates for Godzilla
2: man that fucking
0: skyscraper really <laughs> tied the city together man Carrie Woods uh, admitted uh, they'd never done a sci-fi movie and I had just seen Hudsucker Proxy at Sundance and thought they could give Godzilla a young cool twist you mean those hula hoop guys <laughs> <laughs> they could do
2: Godzilla but then Hudsucker its that or the kid that works at the video store but we're waiting
0: on those guys. <laughs> Then Hudsucker came out and did no business whatsoever, and the studio wanted to put me in a straitjacket. Sony was just never going to give them a $120 million movie. Um, uh, Terry Gilliam was also considered, but was already busy awesome. uh, at TriStar on Cartooned and was developing a film called 12 Monkeys. Um mm. Also looked at were some up and coming filmmakers that hadn't at the time achieved the status of James Cameron or Ridley Scott. Cinematographer turned director Barry Sonnenfield, uh, which had scored hits uh, such as The Addams Family and its sequel, Adams Family Values, and would go on to do Men in Black, uh, the biggest box office hit uh, ever for Columbia Pictures. Um, Sam Raimi was also looked at oh. as well because he was liked by Columbia executives, which he would go on to do Spider-Man with. Right. Um, They found something for him. Right. Uh, Former FX artist Joe Johnston, uh, who had directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, and would find further success with Jumanji, Jurassic Park 3, and Captain America, The First Avenger, was also considered. So, like, he had only done, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and The Rocketeer at that point. Uh, But, like, Jumanji was about to be a huge hit. He did Jurassic Park 3 and then, I mean, Captain America, you know. But he's almost just not enough of a name still, even though he's done like incredible things. Like he's just not like a director. He's not like a household directing name as much. I feel like. Neither is Colin Trevorrow or Ryan Johnson.
2: Right, he's a no, he's um, no Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> Joe Johnston also, uh, I'm pretty sure, designed Boba Fett as like his first yeah, job. That's really cool. And uh, also was uh, Fincher's first gig uh, was Return of the Jedi. Oh, wow. He had oh. this. I think it might, this episode <clears throat> might be too long, but I'm going to keep it in case we don't have to cut it. Is that Fincher was making music videos in New York? And yeah, we'll talk about that actually. Oh, really? Yeah. About the the Steadicam stuff? No, not to say he was just the music videos in New York. <laughs> okay. Well, so he was working on a music video in New York and it, he wanted to undercrank a Steadicam shot, meaning shoot only like 10 frames a second while moving a Steadicam through New York. That when you played it at full speed, it would look like you're zooming through New York. So he calls Steadicam trying to get one of these for a test. And Steadicam goes, who told you about the undercranked Steadicam? And he was like, what, what What are you talking about? Nobody. And he goes, I have to call you back. He gets hung up on. Fincher gets a call from someone at Lucasfilm the next day and says, who told you about the undercranked Steadicam? And he was like, I'm just trying to shoot some stupid shit. Can you just. Get me one. He goes, I got to call you back. He hangs up. Another phone call, and it's George Lucas. And Lucas goes, who told
0: you? Hey, man, who, who told who told you about the undercrank?
2: And basically what was happening was that they were shooting the speeder bikes with that exact same
0: effect. Oh, interesting. And
2: Lucasfilm was basically like, we can't let you be the first to do this. So, but you thought of it on your own. So we're going to hire you to come on and give us how you were going to do it and help us. And Fincher helped with the shooting and effects of the speeder bikes, which is his first credit as like visual effects supervisor or whatever, or, or, you know,
0: that's so sick. What? I didn't know that. The role the uh, the film was also offered to Spielberg, who is busy with post-production and publicity for Jurassic Park and prepping to shoot Schindler's List, uh, making him unavailable for the foreseeable future. Good move. Uh, meanwhile, British director Alex Cock, who had directed. Cox. uh Multiple. Sorry, Cox. Uh, (laughs) Plural. (laughs) Repo, Repo Man, and Sid and Nancy also applied for the Godzilla gig, but not to the producers, but not to the producers at TriStar. Rather, he sent an open letter to prestigious Japanese film magazine Cinema Jump, requesting the job (laughs) from Toho. Cox wrote in the advertisement, "Quote." Godzilla is one of the most important icons of the post-atomic age. Perhaps she is the most important. I assume Godzilla is a she, given that she was uh, produced at least one son. And perhaps this has something to do with her great popularity. Who would not love a giant, angry, fire-breathing dinosaur who is also a mother?
2: Dude, Alex Cox is so fucking grungy and gnarly and fucking awesome. That's so cool.
0: Now Alex Cox's uh, gender confused efforts would however result in some success while TriStar was not interested in working with him on the film he would be hired to write a four issue arc of the Godzilla comic book series so he got to make his his uh, his idea In those Japanese movies
2: who is like canonically Godzilla like the other parent
0: to baby Godzilla Never said Great Yeah he just has a It's an Andy's mom situation uh, yeah, yeah exactly uh d- your dad in pokemon yeah, yeah. um <laughs> uh so robert fried vented uh <laughs> robert fried vented quote ah, you'd be surprised how many writers and directors passed on the project initially they just didn't see the commercial potential now back in tokyo executives at toho expressed their own frustration the Japanese studio had planned to end production for their own Godzilla films in 1993 with entry Godzilla versus Mega Godzilla, but with no American Godzilla in sight, Toho decided to forge on. Henry Saperstein was more upbeat, declaring, "I guess my crowning glory will be when TriStar's movie is released sometime in the summer of 95." Mhm. So, like basically every year, Toho checks back in and they're like, "Hey guys, are we releasing this year?" And TriStar is like probably next year. Well, because like you and said, and so then then they have to throw together another movie. You like know, Toho you said, does.
2: aren't they kind of waiting like once America starts, then Toho can take a second to breathe?
0: Are exactly. Still thinking Toho's about this like three movie plan. Yeah, Toho's like we're gonna have this three movie plan. Once we make these films, you know what I mean. We'll once be America takes hold, we can nap for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, Carrie Woods and Robert Fried scored a major coup when John DeBont signed on to direct Godzilla in the first week of July 1994. Now, if you haven't listened to our Speed episode, uh, John DeBont uh, directed Speed for $37 million, uh, and it made like $200 million. Um, So he was the hottest director in Hollywood. It was right after Speed came out, and everybody in town wanted him. He was the hot director, observed Chris Lee from uh, one of the TriStar executives. Um, now, Fox had just signed him to a two movie deal with, like the the when they signed him on for Speed, they also signed him on for Speed Two, which he was supposed to direct as his next film, contractually. Uh, DeBont, however, was very interested in Godzilla. One of the key reasons being that he was a lifelong fan of the Toho films. Quote, It's like some people fall in love with Westerns or other things, but I, I loved Godzilla movies. This sounds hopeful. This feels good so far. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speed success uh, suddenly gave DeBont the opportunity to do his own Godzilla film. Quote, I had asked to read the Godzilla script from Tristar for many years because I really loved Godzilla movies as a kid, and I thought a new version would be really great. Of course, they never wanted to give it to me because they only wanted so-called A directors. But after Speed came out, all of a sudden, they called and asked if I was interested in reading the script. And I said, yeah, I've been interested in reading the script for two freaking years. And I think this is a kind of an interesting way that we see John DeBont have his first like brush up with what eventually jades him and turns him into a person who throws uh cruise ships at towns you know like, <laughs> like this is kind of like the first cracks in he turns at in, this he, point he when like john is a town
2: in speed 2 like he turns into yeah, i literally
0: said i literally said wanting to build and destroy a city totally makes sense now if he grew up on kaiju films you know what I mean? Like, obviously, he's always wanted to fucking like have something come in and just fucking d- destroy a town. He was probably thinking like, oh, it'll come from the water. It'll be very Godzilla the way it like marches in and destroys everything. Knowing DeBaunt's enthusiasm and with the understanding that he would return to to direct the sequel to Speed. 20th Century Fox decided to keep the promising director happy and let him out of his 2-year deal with the studio so that he could make Godzilla. Um TriStar and DeBont quickly agreed on a 2-year, one-picture deal that would pay the director 4.2 million dollars plus percentages, a substantial increase from his 150,000 he was paid to direct Speed. So, big payday for uh for for our boy DeBont. Um now, at this point, uh, no budget had yet been set for Godzilla, but industry trades rumored the production costs would be around 50 to $65 million, roughly what had been spent on Jurassic Park the year before. Quote, the studio is willing to spend whatever it takes, DeBont told United Press International. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Toho flew DeBont out to Japan for a meeting at the studio, where he was greeted by a performer. I have to send you guys this picture, because as a lifelong Godzilla fan, this was like the coolest trip like the coolest nerd trip ever for debont uh where he got greeted at the studio by a godzilla suit performer holding a sign that says boss welcome to toho studios i know you're gonna make me a hollywood monster we're the monsters and basically like he 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 had a meeting like in a boardroom but he also had these meetings with like Tanaka and Honda where they were like just walking around the Toho lot and they were basically oh. like dude why do you love Godzilla like tell us why you want to make this and he basically got to just talk to them and like walk around with them and be like look I don't want to change Godzilla like I love Godzilla and I want this to be I, I want to show my love for it to other people and he won their trust and they were like we trust you John DeBunt, to make Godzilla and it's fucking beautiful no he wasn't lying he loved it like um and and getting to be there and meet all these people like him meeting honda and eg and you know what i mean like uh, like everybody It was like fucking heaven for him awesome that's so cool uh he said he said quote uh He said, quote, there's a dedication to character that you don't see very often in the United States. It's like just a job for us. I mean, you do the best you can, but you don't understand all the meaning that character has for Japan because he went there and saw these guys who's like life was their life's work was godzilla you know what i mean and he's like man he has to go home to peter gruber and peter gruber just doesn't give a fuck you know what i mean like Um, it would almost there's such like like, a reverence
2: the uh, the american film to set up an office at toho instead like get away and go ingrained in (laughs)
0: godzilla totally totally that would have been a great move but they would never would have done that no yeah i don't um so the director had won over toho But, much to his surprise, he discovered that he now had to do the very same thing with the upper management at Sony Pictures. Uh, Amy Pascal, who was the lead, uh, and I uh, quote... Didn't understand anything about Godzilla. Mm. (laughs) She kept asking more and more people to come to meetings to give their opinion, hoping that someone would disagree with the project. They were always believing that nobody knew anything. They thought nobody had ever heard of Godzilla. They were very, very worried about that now we are jumping into pre-production for the film which began in the summer of 1994 now that's when like the film was supposed to be released you know but it took them over a year to find a fucking director i had to cut this out they were actually putting in like variety and trade magazines like ads being like do you do you want to direct godzilla (laughs) (laughs) are you reading this do you want to direct Godzilla?" that's kind of
2: like the the story submissions in japan Oh,
0: totally. That's very interesting. I didn't think about that parallel. That's, yeah, totally. Um, Now, DeBont said he had very little interaction with producers Woods and Fried once the work began. Quote, I met with them, but I don't know what their function was, to be honest. I don't have any negative feelings about them, but my dealings were mostly with Barry Osborne. Now, Barry Osborne is this incredibly legendary line producer. Um, Quote, Ultimately, when you make a movie, the line producer is the only one who's important. The other people just push paper around. Uh, Barry M. Osborne is an industry veteran, having been the person pretty much uh, solely responsible for pushing Apocalypse Now across the finish line. Hell yeah. Hero. Hero. Uh, A hero. But he was also the line producer uh, responsible for Face Off, The Matrix, and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. like This dude is a fucking Barry M. Osborne fucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um I and I figured anytime I reference the Matrix, I know it I know it makes Richard's little little pee-pee heart as a okay. fucking right. rock. <laughs> two little pee-pees references in like sixty <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Uh in assembling a crew for Godzilla, one of the first people DeBont brought on board was his frequent collaborator Boyd shermis Uh that sucks. (laughs) That fucking blows. B-O-Y-D S-H-E-R-M-I-S, Boyd Shermis. Oh man. uh, who was tapped. (laughs) <laughs> it's a good D and D name. Uh, it was tapped to be the visual effects supervisor for the film. He and DeBont had worked together on several car commercials and a few of the shots in speed, but Godzilla was Boyd Shermis's uh, first major feature film as visual effects supervisor. He would be in charge of absolutely uh, of an absolutely mammoth project that would combine live action footage, digital effects, animatronics and miniatures. Um, Now, at this point, the team is like flying all over the world. They're like like DeBont is like touring every ice cave in Alaska to like find the perfect stalactite ice formations like they're they're going everywhere to be like, oh, what are all the best quarries? Because there was going to be like a fight in a quarry like um and uh, they're also like creating these these huge, expensive miniatures of every set that they're going to use in the film so that they can, like, think about the ways that Godzilla would destroy this set so they can see them from Godzilla's perspective. Quote, we had a whole we quote, we had a whole gigantic room filled with miniature sets. It looked extremely impressive. Can I be honest? Uh, with reported you? variety.
2: Yeah, you, you gave me this. There's this great, um, you know, you. Uh, Resume for Boyd Shermis. I I found his website really. I'm sending it in Discord. Really makes you lose faith in terms of him as a designer. Like, oh my god. Oh boy,
0: yeah. It looks like a '90s. It looks like the 1992 like Space Jam website. Like it's like black (laughs) with like green writing.
2: (laughs) It only has demo reels from 2007 and
0: 2009. Oh boy. And still image gallery. Yeah, this is wild. The, link, the links don't work. No, nothing works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing works. Um, so at this point, uh, John DeBont had met with Stan Winston, um, the four-time Academy Award-winning FX artist who had designed and built the full-scale dinosaurs for Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park.
2: Boyd's home phone number is um, on this website.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, okay. We have to move on so so debaunt starts working with uh stan winston who has uh it's called the stan winston Hell company yeah. but it's like this majorly legendary effects house um that did like predator the like uh, every and, like uh, all the major and even and all the the dress yeah. stuff right yes yes and in fact they also met with his top artist mark crash mccreary that dude's got a uh, who... website for sure that shit's looking good dude Crash, no, Crash McCreary fucking rips. His credits include designing the Predator for Predator 2, modifying Tim Burton's sketches into the final design for Edward Scissorhands, James Cameron's Terminator 2, the Penguin for Tim Burton's Batman Returns, and his artwork for Jurassic Park is the reason, like they weren't going to greenlight Jurassic Park because they were like, we just don't know if the dinosaurs are going to look right. And his sketches of the dinosaurs are what got Jurassic Park greenlit so that's who debont has like met with that like like incredible team and he's trying to work out the contract with stan winston to do all the godzilla work however while he's working out that contract just in case negotiations with stan winston fell through he hires two in-house designers to design both the griffin and godzilla um He had hired the extremely talented illustrator and sculptor Carlos Huarte, uh, who did Batman Forever, would go on to do Men in Black 1 and 2, The Mummy, Signs, Hellboy, Blade Trinity, War of the Worlds, X-Men Last Stand, and Prometheus. So Carlos Huarte is, like, awesome, and they hired him, like, on his, like, first job. I feel like Godzilla is... You know what I mean? Like... Well, yeah, it's his first job, so he's not that guy yet, but... Godzilla
2: has that sort of Star Wars thing where like you do what you can to hire the best people in every department like this is where you show up this is like why these people got into a job and like dreaming
0: they one day get the Godzilla call. Yeah, and he also like uh, like uh, apparently like his his like f- his this is his first job as like designing something, but his first job as like a sculptor and stuff was at uh, Lucas Films, Lucas sure. Digital, like design like sculpting a bunch of the stuff for like the prequels and awesome. stuff, um, like creating like aliens all day, which is like I couldn't think oh, of a man. cooler yeah. fucking job. Um, so uh, he was brought in mainly to design the Griffin. Um, and, uh, Richard Delgado, who was a dinosaur buff and the artist behind the award-winning comic miniseries Age of Reptiles was brought on to design Godzilla. You know, uh, unlike Richard Delgado, who is basically (laughs) on his desk, was dropped about 40 years worth of Godzilla reference material. So they were like, oh, here's Godzilla lunchboxes and comic books and movies. And he looks so vastly different in everything. They drop him like 40 years worth of shit and are like, yeah, make him look like all this." this
2: second one. The second to last Godzilla one that you threw like has such mm-hmm. an energy and it looks like he's kind of smiling like he just pulled a girl's pigtails and is running away like giggling
0: like he's got a little pep in <laughs> yeah he's yeah. a little mischievous um so richard delgado is basically given 40 years worth of godzilla reference material and carlos suarte is giving given nothing and they're like yeah so just make him look like the wow. griffin uh, the only thing he was given was the description provided by the screenplay um, when it came to designing the griffin and the probe bats, uh, which are like kind of what the the thing uses to fly around and grab all the other animals. Um, the artist was also not given any specific instruction from either John DeBont or Joseph Nemec, who was brought on as like another supervising producer uh, in regards to the look of the monster. Quote, it was all up to me, Carlos explained Richard Delgado remembered that, quote, I mostly dealt on the show with Joe Nemec, but John would sometimes come in to see what I was working on with the Godzilla stuff. I would just stand there and he and Joe would talk about the design uh, for John DeBont, uh, The Griffin as Godzilla's enemy was an essential part of the film that he wanted to make. Quote, you have to have a second monster for Godzilla because he can't be the bad guy. That was John DeBont's take was like Godzilla needs to be the hero, which I think is a good take. Yeah, I get it. It's the right take. Um, Now, the script for Godzilla describes the Griffin as a planet conquering, quote, doomsday beast that has, quote, leathery blood red wings like a bat, the body of a mountain lion, smooth and slick eyes, eyes that glow yellow in the darkness, reflecting light like cats, many snakes, a hydra headed thing squirming around where the tongue should be all of that present. Uh, presented a test for huarte quote to be honest the description of the griffin was cartoony so for me the challenge was to try and make it look real it's hard for me you know if you look at it like his sketches are like he's trying to figure out like how do you make a tongue being snakes look realistic yeah you know like (laughs) he's sort of struggling with like how like when you saw it you're immediately like oh gargoyles the animated show you know like he's trying to not make it look like a 90s animated thing in the plan is um, still to do this in, in animatronics? Uh, a mix of animatronics, CGI, uh, miniatures, everything. So in October 94, uh, after three months of 12-hour days of working on these designs, and I, I showed you guys a little bit of the art, but I cannot stress how much work was put into this art, Um Richard Delgado and Quartus Herte, uh, Carlos Huerte learned that Stan Winston's lobbying had paid off and Winston studios had been hired to do the monster designs. Um, quote, uh, Carlos and I were told that our services were being shifted over. After that, I believe we did some production drawings, but nothing related to any creatures. So all that work just thrown out all that work and money. And that's sort of what Sony does at this time is they just fucking burn cash. So I'm going to send you guys right now a little uh, a link to a uh, a short YouTube video. This is 1994 cutting edge digital Godzilla previs. And I want you to sort of describe for me uh, what you're seeing um, mm-hmm. in these previsualization imagery. Um, again, it cannot be overstated Ooh. how cutting edge this is at the time. Food fight energy right away. <laughs> Now, uh, at at this point, we're going to dive into the digital effects in the film. Um, Quote, the studios. No, Uh, no, 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 no. These are practical effects up until this point, baby. Um, The studio's thinking was, what if Jurassic Park could be done with an A-list star as the monster? said Terry Rosio. So that was like, that becomes their thought of like, oh, it's going to be like Jurassic park, but people already know Godzilla. So it's going to be even bigger than Jurassic park. So to accomplish that goal, Godzilla was going to need to push the envelope of visual effect techniques. Jurassic Park had clearly raised the bar for effects, but the film's dinosaurs were shown for less than 15 minutes, with approximately only four minutes of that time being devoted to CGI. Barely a year later, John DeBont and Boyd Shermis intended to have computer generated versions of Godzilla and other creatures on screen for nearly 65 minutes of action in their film. Uh, the quote, this is the first film of this magnitude where the lead character who spends a good time, a deal of time on screen is virtually a hundred percent computer animated. Robert fried declared, uh, debaunt intended to take full advantage of the advancements in digital technology, promising that Godzilla would quote, have a lot of things we haven't ever seen before. Totally new effects, way more complex than Jurassic park. Among these uh, advances would be the creation of photorealistic virtual sets for the monsters to perform on. Computer-generated environments have become a standard feature in modern effect films, but the techniques had not yet been in practice at the time of Godzilla being in development. This technique would actually later be pioneered and used to recreate 1933 New York City in Peter Jackson's King Kong.
2: It's just like any time movies seem to be like competing you know this comes mm-hmm. up a lot like it's like this but better I just read this morning the director of Space Jam 2 literally saying oh we have made a better movie than Space Jam and it's like that's so gross and weird to hear anybody say like that movie my movie beats it and like let alone that your sequel does that you know it, it, that's a common thread with almost all of this stuff yeah I know that also now- makes me suddenly approach it comparing it to it. Like oh, oh this Roland Emmerich or whatever, Godzilla movie is going to be like Jurassic Park suddenly, and that's sort of the legacy of Emmerich's Godzilla is its
0: comparisons to Jurassic Park for better or worse. Right, right. Now, after breaking down the visual effects sequences in the screenplay, Boyd Shermis estimated that Godzilla would need more than 500 computer-generated effect shots, triple the amount for any film to date at that point. Uh, quote, there was a great sequence where Godzilla wipes out the Pacific Naval fleet in the San Francisco Bay, Ricard Delgado. Looking at the storyboards, I was thinking, how are they going to do this? Because it was the most ambitious offense sequence I had ever seen. Reference to an obscure 90s thing. (laughs) So you literally have all these people being like, this is crazy. How's this (laughs) going to (laughs) work? Also, the jump the jump from four minutes of CGI to sixty-five is like cannot be overstated. Well,
2: it's like when um when Cameron called Stan Winston about T2, mm-hmm. he was like, I have this idea for T Two about like a liquid metal cop who like walks up to these jail cell bars and then walks through them as liquid and reforms. Can we do that? And Stan Winston is like, Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Hangs up and is like fuck we need to figure out how to do that <laughs> like yeah he was like i have to say yes because that's such a cool idea and you're james cameron and, and someone's
0: like, gonna do that at some point we have to be the guys yeah like it
2: i out. can't yeah like yeah exactly
0: yeah uh well and like and stan winston and there's gonna be carnage yeah we'll talk about that so uh basically um Concerns over these technical issues cause TriStar executives to decide to push back the start of production on Godzilla until early ninety-five. Which is an interesting choice of TriStar to be like, mm, this thing is burning a lot of money. We should push it back a year and let it burn <laughs> yeah, another year's sure. worth of money. Like in my opinion, you you'd be like, Okay, we're shooting in a month, you know? Like <laughs> Yeah, but it means they're still trying to make it good. Right. They're still trying. The
2: problem trying. with Godzilla is that it can't go under the radar. If you if it's bad, everyone's going to see it being
0: bad. Absolutely. Um, so it's the first time. DeBont and Shermis initially approached ILM, uh, that had just created the incredible CG dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. Uh, they wanted ILM to produce the digital effects for Godzilla. As the top FX studio in the world, ILM was well equipped to handle the myriad of digital effects planned for the film. But they had a packed workload and turned down the offer, citing that Godzilla would require far more computer graphics than any one company could handle. ILM said that Godzilla, as presented, while theoretically possible, would likely need the coordination of, quote, every effects house on the planet. I tell you, King
1: Kong never has these problems.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so instead of listening to ILM... Uh, The number one effects house, the producers are like, well, let's go see if the number two effects house wants the job. Um, (laughs) So That's a master
2: negotiation.
0: (laughs) But I just love the idea of every effects house on the planet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But there are those things of like it taking like three days or something to do like one frame of the T-Rex, right? Like there were like these crazy stories of like how long the renders took. Um, At that time. Now, uh, looking elsewhere, Boyd Shermis and other members of the Godzilla crew uh, were particularly impressed with the visual effects seen in a new Rolling Stones music video, which has debuted this past July. Directed by David Fincher, the music video for Love is Strong featured members of the band and several models digitally enlarged to Godzilla's size. So he needed that undercrank because he wanted to run through the city streets so that when they were walking, it looked like the speed map up correctly oh, um yeah. and that's and really i will gangster. say love is strong's music video the effects still look good
2: oh fincher's a fucking
0: psycho Those with effects. still look fucking
2: good i watched it anyone like just who to wants see. to go down a crazy rabbit hole is look up finch like david fincher effects reels um now like for dragon tattoo or gone girl where like he will show up on a set and go well okay i need to change that borders bookstore into the, like he is so meticulous and smart, and it came from his music video past where, like, he had to just figure everything out and do everything.
0: Yeah, or, or just, like, the meticulousness. Like, he had everybody, like, in that whole, uh, in the um, House of Cards intro, he had, like, every person like photoshopped out of every shot in every time lapse like of dc oh, 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 so that yes, it felt so crazy. that it felt like barren and desolate and then when he was done he was like yeah it actually didn't feel that different after after we spent all that money i actually kind of regret it <laughs> this is the yeah um so uh apparently like right after watching this music video, everyone from John DeBont all the way down, uh, the entire production line was like stoked in the office when they got this tape. Uh, they were like running around. Um, and John DeBont said, quote, we're going to have Godzilla running around just like that. It's going to look real. Like they were all fucking hype, like with these people. Um, The visual effects for Love is Strong were created by Digital Domain, the digital effects house established in 1993 by James Cameron and Stan Winston, (laughs) Uh, which Stan Winston had created this company in 93 after seeing uh, Jurassic Park. He literally watched Jurassic Park and and was like, oh, I'm going to die like the dinosaurs if I don't make a digital effects company also. So he got into business with who he thought was the best at digital effects. And, you know, obviously his collaborator uh, in that T2 shot, uh, James Cameron, Jimmy Cam, Jimmy Cam. Uh, So we actually have some really fun James Cameron quotes throughout this thing from him being like on the business side of this movie being made. Mm. Uh, So, um Though relatively new, the company had already had two major film credits with uh, Cameron's *True Lies* and the all-star adaptation of *Interview with a Vampire*, which had just come out. So they did all the digital effects for that. Uh, and while Digital Domain would tackle, <laughs> while Digital Domain would tackle the lion's share of the digital workload, their previous feature film assignments had only been 104 shots for *True Lies* and 42 for *Interview with a Vampire*, far less than Godzilla would require so james cameron admitted we didn't want the whole job we figured out a way to do part of it and supervise the work from two other smaller visual effects companies i mean there were over 500 shots and they were all computer graphic animation so even james cameron is like this is i don't know dude this is a lot but <laughs> <laughs> james cameron is being like dude this is a lot of digital work, <laughs> like a lot of work yeah, to dial post. It, back. it back. A lot of work at post. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> uh, quote, um, what I remember most about Godzilla is a series of meetings at digital domain. Richard Holland, Hollander told sci-fi digital. Uh, there were three digital effects companies involved because of this. Simply scheduling meetings could take weeks. The tough areas were in creating believable destruction it crumbling buildings, debris, and water effects. Rendering water digitally was extremely difficult and time consuming. Water is still hard to do today, but it was even worse back then. In terms of difficulty, the easiest would be the creature effects. So you sort of have them talking about how, like, just trying to get these companies on the same page is like a huge logistical nightmare because these companies are also working on it's other like- shit. <laughs> It's like FBI and
2: CIA and, and local <laughs> PD not knowing what each other has. Well,
0: actually, exactly like that. In a 1994 article <laughs> in The Hollywood Reporter, uh, uh, they said, quote, it's hard to believe that this is going to work. First of all, all these VFX companies all hate each other, <laughs> which they had That's hired. Uh, they're, they're, you know, yeah. capitalist competitors. right? That's and uh, I mean, and they, they would have to... Um, They would all be required to like share software. So actually six months, uh, the production had been delayed again for another six months while the digital effects companies wrote new software to render the effects that were being asked for in the film. And then these companies then had to share this proprietary software with their competitors, which they were not into doing at all um but the companies were uh sony picture image works which was brand new at the time and uh vifix um Mixing CGI and animatronics was a big selling point for John. Uh, John DeBond agreed, noting that uh, in his first meetings with Stan Winston over the feasibility of doing mechanical creatures, quote, the question of it was scale. They had never worked on such a big scale creature before, and it's a bit problematic. The bigger the creature is, the harder it is to make it move in an organic way, as if it has life. So they wanted these like full sized Godzilla head. And Stan Winston's like, right. The problem is, if you do a full size Godzilla head, it has to move like 5,000 pounds and it, it can only do it very, like, you know, it could do like big movements, but it can't do like nuance like they want it. You know what I mean? Like, he wanted like an emotional Godzilla robot. <laughs>
2: we need him to look straight ahead and give a performance <laughs> yeah
0: yeah exactly uh now actually that would probably work um again uh they delay the project uh once more as the design gets tweaked again um this time by the de- by the design team that was first brought in with crash mccreary as stan winston's company also has to redesign godzilla and the griffin quote Crash's designs were based off a mixture of different animals for the griffin. It started off with a sort of silver fish that made its way on shore. I can't remember everything it, it uh, evolved with. A bat was the first thing, a bird, a cougar, a bunch of different things. Like he he's drawings like consistently save like major motion pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he seems like a finisher. He's really awesome. Uh, I'm a big I'm a big Crash Mark after all of this. Uh, But I really like his design for the griffin. Also, like, I think his griffin design, like the way it has like hooves and claws and wings and a mountain lion face, like it looks pretty badass. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, it would be a pretty cool uh, villain. So uh, this is something interesting. Um, Crash. Uh, said, "Quote: The weird part of this whole Godzilla story is that I'm very, very good friends with Patrick Tatopoulos. Now, Patrick Tatopoulos is the designer of the Godzilla for the Roland Emmerich version um, of the movie. Uh, he designs like that Godzilla, and he is also, for some weird reason, who they rename the protagonist of the movie after. They named the protagonist of that film Nick Tatopoulos. I don't know why." <laughs> um but uh crash and Totopolis worked together on the super mario brothers movie and and designed the yoshi dinosaurs back in 93 whoa that's crazy mhm so that's why the yoshi design looks so interesting and Uh, topless is also really critical of the whole John DeBont Godzilla because he's very defensive about his design because people always say it sucks and he's like look I think it's really disrespectful what they did to the Toho films I think to take the design and tweak it like that and just say oh I improved it is really disrespectful I think it's way less disrespectful to just make a whole different design that's that's the same thing I did with Yoshi
2: just make a movie just like make a
0: movie just make a movie Um, a major budgetary concern for the production was the film's action sequences, many of which would require full-scale practical effects. A November 94 variety re- uh, report noted quote, "Action sequences cost anywhere from 80,000 to 140,000 per setup. and with literally hundreds of setups being planned, this production budget could climb upwards of a hundred million, which is too much for them. Yeah, too much for a for in November 1994, the. Cr- <laughs> right, uh, the crew traveled to Oregon to start the construction on Godzilla's first set, a full scale Japanese fishing village that would be featured in the very first sequence of opening shot of the film quote it's a scene where godzilla terrorizes a japanese island in the pacific he just wants to destroy a town by the water it's all he fucking wants to do (laughs) (laughs) he's obsessed with destroying towns near water he dude he's so mad at the coast he that's his john peters thing is
2: destroying (laughs) it he watches um, water he watched popeye and was just fucking steaming
0: (laughs) nothing destroyed that town. Someone's gonna destroy sweet water (laughs) now the footage shot at the fissing village in the script this is like the cold open of the movie sorry uh, the fistic village um in the in the script it's like the cold open of the movie and it's like a, a little japanese village and then like fucking godzilla comes out of the water and like dwarfs this whole village and destroys it and like wa- keeps walking like So they did shoot? Well, so here's what here's what happens. Um the footage uh shot at the fishing village location would have served a multitude of purposes for the filmmaker. First, it would act as a test for the visual effects teams as both Godzilla and the effects of a powerful storm would need to be added digitally to the scene. The, the early shoot would give the FX crews ample time to create the finished shot and work out any kinks or glitches in their new software. The finished material would then be used for a teaser trailer to be released in the summer of 95, Lastly, the full sequence would be included in the final cut of the film as the cold open. So they were like, let's film this. And and they also had told Sony that it was just going to be a camera test, uh, like an effects test. But DeBont was like, no, we were going to include it in the film. The whole crew knew we were going to include it in the film. So we were shooting it like full, you know, full stop and. We were going to use it as a trailer and, you know, it didn't feature the cast, so they were able to, you know, they they could basically film it before they had cast the movie. Um, So it's actually kind of smart and it's it's actually very similar to that museum shot that became the trailer for. You oh know, sure. Emmerich, yeah, was talking about, yeah. Um, which was actually supposed to be included in his film also, but was cut. And that sequence alone cost uh, Sony $500,000 to produce. Just that little uh, museum sequence from Emmerich's film. Interesting. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so while they didn't need to cast anybody for this initial camera test, uh, TriStar's early announcements had promised that the movie would feature quote, a list stars. So John DeBont began his search. However, Henry Saperstein didn't see the need for high profile actors stating that quote, Godzilla's the star. Come on kid. Which I get like he's, he's rapping his boy. He's repping his boy. So according to Terry Rosario, uh, sorry, Terry Rossio. Uh, the director was considering Helen hunt and bill Paxton in a bit of irony. Hunt's then boyfriend, Hank Azaria would later play cameraman, Victor animal Pilati in Devlin slash Emmerich's film. And he would eventually use the pair. Uh, would use the pair in his upcoming film twister instead. Right on.
2: Great casting. I mean that those are two great actors.
0: Yeah. yeah. Two good actors. Um, so here's where things begin to fall apart. Uh, John DeBont planned to begin filming of Godzilla in March 95. Principal photography was expected to last six months, followed by several months of FX work and post-production, with the movie being released in summer of 96. Quote, it's a very big project. Jurassic Park is actually almost simple compared to this. <sighs> Great. <laughs> well- Uh, and that's a, that's a DeBond quote in 94. (laughs) However, Godzilla was about to be undone by serious financial and managerial problems at Sony Pictures. You see. Yeah. Uh, the situation had begun in September of 1989 when Sony purchased Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures from the Coca-Cola company for $3.4 billion. Weird. Did you guys know that? No, I didn't know that. Sony quickly chose... Peter Gruber and his lifetime producing partner, John Peters, to run their new studio. No expense was paid, was spared to get Gruber and Peters on board. Sony entered into a complex series of deals that involved acquiring the failing Gruber Peters Entertainment Company for $200 million and paying $700 million to buy out the two's producing contract with Warner Brothers. Sony reportedly spent $130 to $150 million updating the 75-year-old studio to a modern facility with state-of-the-art equipment while peters insisted the building facades were redone by batman set designer anton first quote you can't play the u.s open on ping pong tables honey oh jesus On top of the mountains of cash Sony Corp. was pouring into their new studio, Gruber's and Peters would ring up numerous personal expenses on the company's dime. Each one had access to their own corporate jet, their own personal chef, an in-house florist, their own private dining room, and other perks. What are they bringing to the fucking table for this? What do they get out of this? <laughs> Gruber's wife and peter's ex were each given production deals and offices on the studio lot peter's ex-wife so just everyone there fucking gets like production deals. like it's fucked. insane yeah or half fucked in the past <laughs> goober's high school sweetheart was given a three picture deal uh quote uh sony pictures overhead was twice as much as the industry average these guys were just pouring money down the drain said an industry analyst regardless of high costs Sony corporate corporations gamble soon seemed to be paying off under Peter Gruber later aided by production head Mark Canton Sony pictures had produced and distributed a string of hit films the Prince of Tides getting 110 million at the box office a league of their own getting 132 Bram Stoker's Dracula making 215 a few good men getting 243 sleepless in Seattle getting 228 in the line of fire getting 177 and they were able to catch. Capture 120 Academy Award nominations between 91 and 94. But Sony Pictures was also dealing with a number of costly flops, including All Do Anything, which lost them $30 million. North, which lost them... Uh, about 35 million city slickers, which was a tremendous uh, city slickers too, which was a tremendous dip from the first films, $178 million take with only 43 million um, striking distance, a Bruce Willis vehicle that lost $8 million. Arnold Schwarzenegger's action comedy, the last action hero, which lost 25 million and Geronimo an American legend, which reportedly lost 40 million. So while Sony touted, while Sodi touted its successes while repeatedly deferring losses over and over again, that all apparently caught up with them and all these box office failures kind of compounded in the first half of 1994, when the division reported a $250 million red loss. So they had sort of been high, like riding high on all this good press, some of the movies hitting, but the movies that were hitting were ones that they had put a ton of money into. Yeah. So the ones that were losing were losing too much to like this isn't sustainable. They're just fucking losing money. Um gnarly. With the writing on the wall, Peter Gruber resigned from his position as chairman and CEO of Sony Pictures in September of 94. Uh, goober's exit netted him with a golden parachute of 40 million dollars so we got an extra 40 million for running this place into the ground mm-hmm. sony also agreed to provide 275 million in funding for goober to launch his own independent production company mandalay entertainment group so like i don't know who who he has blackmail on who's who he has seen fuck kids on an island, but like somebody has made it so that, I mean, that's fucking Peter Goober's fucking, that's his white guy money. Like he got 275 million plus, plus 40 million for him to just take home and put in the bank. But 275 million, they gave him to just make another company. Damn. He did it guys. I'm so psyched (laughs) for him. He white guides so hard. (laughs) Um, For stockholders, the big shock came in November when Sony Pictures took a $3.2 billion write-off based on financial losses and overspending that included a staggering $520 million tied up in unfinished film projects. The Securities and Exchange Commission charged Sony Corporation with misleading shareholders. Following a lengthy investigation, Sony was fined a million dollars, the largest amount the SEC had ever levied against a company not convicted of outright fraud.
2: Wow. That's a God... Well, it's a Godzilla-sized issue.
0: Yeah, it is a (laughs) Godzilla-sized, you know. The SEC levying against you Mm -hmm. is a Godzilla-sized issue. Um... There was a prevailing sense of doom at Sony Pictures. One producer described the studio executives as being, quote, paralyzed by indecision, with no one about to greenlight a film that uh or take any action that might bring the axe from their bosses at Sony Corporate. According to Variety's Pete Bart, quote, the decision makers at Sony were essentially looking for excuses not to make movies. Hmm it's like the guy in billion dollar movie will forte's character is like i make more money when i don't sell knives to kids <laughs> <laughs> the, the mayor pays me not to sell these knives is will forte ever not the best part of a movie he's so good uh so this was the minefield that godzilla was unknowingly walking into mm Right? Uh, yeah. and the team knew that the studio was not eager to take on such a large scale, FX heavy, and most importantly, expensive production. Now, the production department estimated that Godzilla was gonna cost between 140 and 180 million dollars to make as Devont wanted. Mm. Mm. The studio immediately refused to spend more than a hundred million on the movie. Like so they get that budget proposal and the studio's like there's no way we're doing this for over 100 million. You're fucking crazy. And with a 140 million dollar budget for a movie with this many effects, everybody tax on an extra 30% Debont said. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So the studio was looking at a movie that they thought was going to be 200 million.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um now in this a lot Debont's going to talk about how he's pretty sure he would have made this movie pretty cheap. but i think he would have gone over budget much like emrick did sure uh i think just at that time with vfx like you're gonna go over budget yeah um you're gonna have a bad day Debont also keeps mentioning that he's like one of the directors at this time that is most experienced with digital effects and i'm like i really don't think you are because he's (laughs) a cinematographer right Yeah, and I guess he did a lot of car commercials and a lot of, like, commercials that used cool effects and stuff, so he felt he was very prepared.
2: I get that. It's sort of like um, Ridley Scott making Alien as, like, his second movie and seeming like this master craftsman. Sure, sure. Because Um, he'd made thousands of
0: commercials. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Quote, they were make they were talking about five times as many digital effect shots as had ever been done previously. And that was crazy, recalled a member of Digital Domain's team who had worked on Godzilla. Quote, debont didn't understand what was involved in all of that. He wanted a completely generated, computer-generated Godzilla, which is certainly possible. It's just expensive. Uh, Terry Rossio observed, I recall the line producer taking a, p- a page from our script, holding it up and saying, this is six million dollars. This is a six million dollar piece of paper. This is a six million dollar page. <laughs> it was a section of the final battle between Godzilla and the Griffin in and around the World Trade Center in New York. At the time, we were oddly proud of having written a six million dollar page.
2: Uh, it's, a, it's a badge of honor. <laughs> It's now common practice.
0: I just think that that's so interesting of the line producer being so like exacerbated in that meeting. No, of just I being get like, it. No, no, this is $6 million. Mm-hmm. That's the problem for sure Because <laughs> I can't turn the page without spending $6 million of the budget here. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, but John DeBont recently said Sony's issues over the budget were in truth, a smoke screen mm. quote, they said in the beginning that this was about the money and that our script was too expensive, which is of course the biggest bullshit lie ever. It had nothing to do with the budget.
2: What is so why is why according, is according
0: yeah. According to the director, Sony and Pascal were using the situation to push for a quote, less Japanese take on Godzilla. It's just so interesting that Sony is being like, Hey, it's really lame how Japanese Godzilla is. Yeah yeah uh they felt that this take would appeal to a wider audience quote i told sony we still wanted to make the character we still wanted to keep the character of godzilla we didn't want to create a new americanized godzilla because it doesn't fit any story they were extremely worried that the american audience wouldn't go for godzilla i said i think they won't go for it if you americanize it that's the worst thing you could do to godzilla So like DeBond has the right take here in this conversation, but I think Sony is just obsessed with it. Looking as close as possible to fucking Jurassic Jurassic Park, Park. which if it had come out in 1993 or 94 would have been cool. Mm -hmm. But now we're coming out five years after no one gives a shit anymore. that it looks like the T-Rex of Jurassic Park. No one gives a shit and they're still hung up on it. Um. The later Roland Emmerich film would see many parallels to Jurassic Park uh, inserted by Sony, uh, sure, with Godzilla yeah. looking much more like a T-Rex and the Godzilla babies being a ripoff of the Raptors. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, the sort, sort of like grouping together the experts into w- under one tent to like weigh
0: in on the the threat. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, Now, the writers did a rewrite to try and cut the budget. Quote, the script that Ted and Terry wrote had fewer big effect scenes and uh, had fewer big effect scenes than the one that got made in 1998. Mm -hmm. Uh, Working with line producer Barry Osborne and production designer Nemec, uh, he reconfigured the budget for Godzilla. Quote, it was around 100 million, DeBont said. We could show on paper how it could be done for that amount. DeBont said this yes and mm-hmm. that was and this was sort of through Barry Osborne like massaging everything being like we can put this with this we can shoot this with this we can put this combine this reuse these plates for this like he's being very creative and like how can I get this film to a hundred million so we can get it across the fucking green light yeah. line because um, he is a fucking G but yeah, that's to his, DeBont's, yeah. uh frustration Sony rejected his offer they said no 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 we need someone who can control cost uh, what more do you want? Barry Osborne's a big producer. He's a producer with real experience who's worked on really big movies. If they can't trust his budget, who the hell are they going to trust? That's what DeBont said. Ugh. So he's
2: just, I mean, he's so heartbroken at this point because he sees it happening. He sees. Well, what's, yeah. What's and coming. he
0: basically, he brings this to Sony, this hundred million dollar budget. And they're like, look, we're not doing it for less than 80 yeah. or for more than 80. And then they retool it again. And they're like, look, we're not doing it for more than 60.
2: Uh, so and they just don't want like,
0: really to do it. Yeah, it just becomes this weird thing of like they clearly just don't want to do it. The the writers realize that Debon's Godzilla was probably not going to get made around this time. Quote, Ted and I are somewhat pessimistic by the nature when it comes to film projects with high budgets. It's very easy to say no to spending a hundred million dollars. Well, <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty woke on the topic of yeah. this. <laughs> Uh, As John DeBont went back and forth with Sony, Peter Gruber suddenly stepped back into the fray. And here is where we really cement him as the villain of the story. Mm. Gruber was setting up Mandalay Entertainment, and he had decided that his first film would be DeBont's Godzilla. But Sony was financing Mandalay, and considering the reasons behind Gruber's departure from the studio, they were less enthusiastic over the idea of launching his new company with such a huge and cost-prohibitive production. Uh, Mickey Shuloff quickly convinced Gruber that he was pushing his luck, and instead offered several put films... That would automatically be green light green lit by produ- uh, production from Sony without any additional oh, sure. approval. like a
2: putt pilot like this will go.
0: Yeah, where it's like like there were a couple movies like uh, it was um, I know what you did last summer was one that he knew Sony was going to buy mm-hmm. like so. So he was he basically comes to him and says, dude, don't do this. It's yeah. too much of a gamble. Take these movies. Fuck Godzilla. And with like holding Godzilla's fate, like John Devon's Godzilla's fate in his hands and having netted another sweet deal for himself, Peter Gruber just drops Godzilla fucking off the cliff to die.
2: You're telling me this movie producer was in it for the money.
0: (laughs) Uh, The talks between Sony and DeBont uh, continued to go nowhere, uh, prompting complaints that the director was being difficult. Uh, quote, uh, he's tough and doesn't want to do certain things, said a studio source. By mid-December, the industry trades were, had repeated rumors that DeBont may be quitting Godzilla to take on either Amblin's Twister or uh, Warner Brothers' Faceoff. Or, sorry, Face Off at Paramount. Sorry. Face Off is one of those titles that is dorky, but it is also the best title you could name that movie. I think they should have called um,
2: Silence of the Lambs Face Off. <laughs> oh,
0: guys, guys, this is a good on. pod.
2: Come, Come
0: on. on. Um, hoping to keep him on board, TriStar's production department met with DuBont on December 16th with a new idea a way to guarantee a lower budget for the film. Simply cut out the griffin completely.
2: Hey, I mean, it's called fucking Godzilla. (laughs)
0: Um, The suggestion was not The suggestion was not well received. Uh, DeBont insisted, have you ever looked at any Godzilla movies? The griffin was the perfect opponent for Godzilla and they wanted to cut it. We were all so upset.
2: This is the Deuce Bigelow European gigolo method of cutting the griffin.
0: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Uh, Saperstein complained, uh, and I love this Saperstein quote more than fucking anything. They decided at the studio they were going to make the most special effects ever in a film. Well, they found out that's a mistake. You should do it with the best special effects, not the most special effects, because the most special effects drove the budget up to 130 million. So when Godzilla's budget got to 130 million, I for one said to them, Hey guys, uh, we've made 20 of these films and we've never spent more than 8 million. I mean, we had a guy running around in a rubber suit. What's all this nonsense about computer-generated what's-its and graphics and all that? When I say to people, what's wrong with keeping the rubber suit? They look at me and they say, yeah, 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 thanks a lot, Saperstein. Well, different ain't necessarily better. Better's better. And more expensive ain't necessarily better. But I'm not the one spending the money. They are. The
2: one that understood it first (laughs) and ultimately.
0: (laughs) Right? i love where he's just like what? what is this on the cgi you go you get a guy you know fucking suit we do this for eight million we'll be done in a week they film these things in three days over there like-
2: <laughs> yeah no it, which is like why probably why he as a producer thought it was such a great fucking thing to have in his pocket like i have this mega franchise that you shoot quick and cheap and it's okay if it looks a little stupid
0: Right, right, right.
2: Which would have flown if he'd gotten it off the ground right away in the 60s. You know, like, just make a couple shitty American guy in a suit Godzilla's in the
0: 60s and 70s. 100%. 100%. It could have caught on the same way. Uh, Now, while DeBont is still arguing about budget with Sony, surprisingly, a second monster, other than the Griffin, briefly entered the negotiations. Terry Rossio revealed that, quote, Sony made a request at one point that we create a sidekick. A Robin-type monster to Godzilla's Batman. Ironic at the time that the studio was coming to the decision that they couldn't afford a monster for Godzilla to fight, they were asking us to create another monster character. While the idea would initially seem like a higher budget, it was intended to drastically cut the expenses in the long run. The studio would have a, would have sequel rights, so they want us to create a helper monster for Godzilla that they could spin off and serialize. Yes, they were hoping to make a Godzilla sequel Without Godzilla. From our point of view, this was a non starter.
2: To like, they wanted to create their own property completely separate. Yeah.
0: And then make movies about baby Godzilla. Without Toho. Without Godzilla. Yes. The director added that Toho also disapproved of this idea. Quote, they had their own sidekicks, all the other creatures that they had created in their other movies over all these years. They had a ton of them, and they didn't want someone else to design new creatures that they would have no control over. So, with everything being a stalemate, Sony paid John DeBont his $4.2 million contract out, Uh and the director was off the project December 26th, 1994, the day after fucking Christmas. Why you gotta do him like that? That's so mean. With DeBont's departure, Sony Pictures shut down the production indefinitely. It was a very ugly, ugly affair, and I'm trying to forget it, lamented John DeBont. I was making the movie for fans of Godzilla and hoping to make many, many new fans. Roland Emmerich's budget was initially less than mine for what he was going to do, though it ended up costing more. But they really liked the fact that he changed Godzilla and he Americanized it. That's the key reason. The rest was just a bunch of lies. Wow. Uh, they changed Godzilla which is the dumbest thing that could ever happen. It's like changing King Kong into something else. It just doesn't work. The studio basically screwed up the whole character of Godzilla and made it impossible to make a sequel. They killed their own franchise. Sony and Tristar would eventually offer the film back. <laughs> yeah, was Tristar killed the beast. Twas was Amy Pascal killed the beast. Um, Sony and Tristar would eventually offer the film back to Emmerich and Devlin. Quote, when we were first offered Godzilla, we thought it was a dopey idea. But the second time we were offered Godzilla, we still thought it was a dopey idea.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) I'm sure because they're pitching a dopey idea version
0: of it. However... The duo realized how incredibly badly Sony needed to put out something related to the Godzilla property and realized that they could ask for anything they wanted, including full creative control in writing and producing. Which they were granted. <laughs> uh, they had said this about. I will do it, but you have to greenlight the Patriot. Um, Emmerich said this about uh, the John DeBont version. It had some really cool things in it, Uh, but it is something I would never have done. The last half was just watching two creatures go at it. I simply don't like that. Fuck you, don't make Godzilla! (laughs) Yeah. Uh, For Emmerich, the only way to create a great Godzilla film was to completely ignore the traditions established in the Toho movies. Quote, I didn't want to make the original Godzilla. I didn't want to make Toho's Godzilla. I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted to make my own. Yeah. Now, a lot of people quote are like, how did Toho let them get away with this design? You know, um, the 75 page design document detailing Godzilla's design was never faxed to to who was working on the design. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> he just never it apparently was faxed, but just like never came through. Like yeah. just the cover page, which had like, please make him strong and can't die. And he was like, cool, that's easy. And like... <laughs> yeah, that didn't reach the right people. Um, when the group presented, uh, when the Emirate group presented their design to Toho, it was met with two full minutes of silence. <laughs> oh, no. And they were asked to just please return the next morning. Sure. Oh, yeah. Um. Tanaka, who you remember from our last episode, the creator of Godzilla, was on his deathbed, so he could not uh, attend the meeting. And thank God he asked what the design looked like since they legally weren't allowed to take any of the materials off the Toho lot to the hospital. Um, The team that came to the hospital struggled to describe the design until they eventually said, he kind of looks like a basketball player. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> this like lean body like especially in the maquette that they sure. brought him like is showing off how like lean and human his body looks and they were like yeah he kind of looks like a basketball player <laughs> um emmerich said this about the old designs john debont created a godzilla that was very close to the original but it's not right because today we wouldn't do it like that the, apparently, his only design requirement uh, to Tatopolis was that it, the beast, quote, run 300 miles per hour. <laughs> who's, this is whose? <laughs> this is Emric
2: <laughs> Yeah, to Ttopolis. Um, I want him to treat the whole city like the Autobahn. He goes as fast as he would like to. So we
0: have two. That is the two... only thing
2: wrong with Frankenstein is that he does not go very fast. <laughs>
0: Yeah, literally. Like, he just wanted this Godzilla that could, like, run around. He thought it was dumb that Godzilla was slow. I think that's I one of the him, biggest like, things. He's, like, booking it through the streets and he hides. Doesn't he, like, hide? He hides the almost the whole movie. Yeah. Like, and that's why fans were so upset, too, of, like, and there were other stuff, too, of, like, Emmerich was like, oh, no, no, Atomic Breath is lame and dumb. He should have, like, very flammable burps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um. So I'm gonna. Th- this is the kind of the the last two things. Uh, mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up with these two quotes here. Mm. Um. So this quote is from uh, the co-executive producer Robert Fried. He said. The Sony executive team that took over Godzilla was one of the worst cases of executive incompetence I have observed in my 20-year career. One of the golden assets of our time, which was hand-delivered to them on a silver platter, was managed so poorly and ineptly as anyone could possibly manage an asset. They took a jewel and turned it into dust. They did, though. (laughs) They did, though. (laughs) They did, though. Um, And this final quote, which is what we'll kind of end the story with today is a quote from uh, about the development hell of the project from none other than James Cameron. And I think Mm. it kind of encapsulates the whole production perfectly. Uh, This was, this quote was uh, taken right after they had fired DeBont and they were hiring Roland Emmerich Uh, quote. The studio is now rewriting Godzilla to try to reduce the budget said James Cameron. I was involved on the, on a day to day basis with the biggest effect contract in history on that film. It'll be interesting to see what the studio comes back with after rewriting the script. We've given them all of our input on how to maximize the bang for their buck. I was front and center, ready, willing, and able to play as big of a creative role as they wanted me to play in reconceptualizing the visuals so that they could be manageable from a budget standpoint. There were many problems. One, the size of Godzilla. Big is much more difficult than small. Two, Godzilla's interactions with water was also difficult and costly. And three, Godzilla's interaction with masonry was also difficult and costly. So in other words, their main problems were the exact main identifying principles of a Godzilla film. I was shocked to realize that they had embarked on a screenplay entirely composed of problems without anybody pointing this out seemed amazing to me. It still does. But hey, that's Hollywood. (laughs) That's how they do it in Hollywood. And so that is, thus closes the tale as he walks, as he lumbers back into the ocean, Uh as he often does, uh, the story of the development hell of the Godzilla films. Masterfully researched. Thank you buddy. Again, thank you so much to Sci-Fi Japan and Keith Aiken for for a ton of that research and those quotes. Like a lot of those Debont quotes were never written before this article. Cool. No one ever knew the the inside dealings of that ever. Um and so it's really good. Cool. In fact, a lot of people the the prevailing uh, narrative had been that this was a film he was brought on to do before Speed. And so this was sort of the first article being, like, no, 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 he was brought on to this because of Speed. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, of course but yeah so i mean i i love this story i mean what a what a ambitious because i mean i was watching the 2014 godzilla film and i'm like this probably has 500 effect shots now, you know like you know like more than that even like yeah. and so it like this film was just so ahead of its time in where the design would have been what it would have get into the fans like a big proper kaiju fight you know like and then you would have fought queen bitch in the in the oh, yeah fuck yeah <laughs> So, and then I mean
2: space queen bitch and then right. ghost queen bitch
0: mecca queen bitch yeah. of course did I did I uh mention that the the thing with the toys being hidden for a long time Mm-mm. so the the design of Godzilla was sort of this big secret you know what I mean like all the marketing had he's this tall he's blank you know he's this long but it didn't have pictures of the Godzilla design right yeah and like the trailer only showed his foot so they had told all the toy companies to not put toys on the shelf until the day the movie comes out because they mm-hmm. didn't want to spoil the design. However, the Taco Bell toys. Had his design fully showed and were on in commercials everywhere, so all these toy manufacturers are like, "What the fuck?" And so they couldn't sell toys in all the hype leading up to the movie, and then the movie comes out and it's not that pop, like people don't love it, and so like it leads to the toys being massively undersold. So there's like landfills full of like Godzilla, wow. fucking toy merch. You know,
2: I looking at this, the talk I had every single one of these Taco Bell things so did you have
0: did you have the baby godzilla in the little liquid egg thing
2: yeah that that one is i had
0: that i had the cup hugger the little oh
2: the cup hugger is sick dude um i had it it was
0: made specifically to hold a large dr pepper yeah i'm sure it did that for me (laughs) (laughs) this is
2: such a major nostalgia trip looking at these because i had i had all of this
0: and i loved it Fuck. Oh yeah, no. I love. I love the. Uh, the toys are very cool. Oh, all right.
1: Okay, guys. Wow. So next week, uh, we're gonna take this back. Uh, speaking of like called shots and sort of uh, trying to make it, and it's sort of exploding uh, at your feet. I'm gonna do. The Dark Universe, uh, a.k.a. Universal's attempt at a shared, connected universe. And uh, so the movie everyone's going to need to watch is Tom Cruise's The Mummy. And I assure you, this is a 100% a Richard pick. From daddies, from daddies to mummies.
2: Find us on Instagram at devhellpodcast. Um, and, uh, of course, thanks so much to Tizzy Mav for our awesome music with our names in it.
0: Thank you so much for listening, right, demons.
2: Bye, By demons.
1: demons. Roland Emmerich sounds like an asshole. You telling me a king made these monsters? A hey, Peter. As the Asian of the group, I give you permission to say whatever offensive thing you just said. Ha ha ha! Oh my god! Wow, you can say this story truly has been a monster of a time.